Welcome to How to Build a Village, and I am honored today to welcome Tara Duffy, who graduated with a master's in East Asian studies and then began a career in international journalism, working in Hong Kong for Dow Jones and the Associated Press and for CNN in London and Beijing. She then shifted to the nonprofit world, working as a program advisor for the Asia Foundation's Beijing office for five years. Her family decided to take a break from the traffic and pollution of Beijing and moved to the west coast of Ireland for one year in 2013. Then she continued what had been a part-time interest teaching Iyengar yoga. With a move to Hong Kong a year later, she continued working in nonprofit and also teaching yoga. Another move back to Ireland for three years was followed by her family's decision to move to Taipei in 2019 for what was supposed to be one year. With the pandemic, she and her family have extended their stay. So Tara, welcome. Thank you, Jill, so much for inviting me to be on your podcast. So how has the world changed for you in Taipei? Because at first, Taiwan avoided lockdown. So things were going very well for Taiwan, as you know. And just um, in the past 10 days or so, the numbers have just come up from single digits to double digits to now triple digits daily. And what that meant for us is very is immediately after the cases jumped from double digits to triple digits, Taiwan went into what is called level three. It's a semi-lockdown. So that means that they everything except essential businesses should close. But they have this caveat where that means unless you can keep social distancing or you can keep track of, of your clientele. So people have kind of interpreted that a little loosely to begin with. So clothing stores, jewelry stores, coffee shops, everything was open for the first week or so. You'd have to register uh, your phone when you went in or your details, but people kind of stayed open hoping for the best. But it quickly became clear that the numbers weren't going down. Um, they weren't necessarily going up a lot, but they were definitely still in the several hundreds per day. So some people took the initiative and shut early. So they went to take out, for example, or other shops just shut entirely. Um, for me, it means that I don't teach in person anymore. I'm teaching online, which is something that I know the whole world has been doing for almost a year and a half now. So that's been the biggest change. I'm not um, going in to the studio as often. I was teaching from the studio online and maybe we'll change and do that from home depending on how things go soon. And my daughter's also back to online school, which she had only done for a couple of weeks last year. Oh, that's been hard for everyone. How has your family been back in the States? Because it seems in some ways like the tables are turned because while they were in lockdown, you were not. And now things are changing a bit, both for them and for you. My family back in the States, my parents, my sister, um, they're all fully vaccinated. So they're excited to get out and do things again. My sister's son and daughter are back in school uh, in person. So they're slowly venturing out into society again, perhaps eating in a restaurant for the first time in a year or more. So it's different, but I'm so happy that they have reached that stage. It was, it's interesting because just as the numbers started shooting up in Taiwan and Taiwan is going up to what they call the level three, I was comparing it with London. So London 
at that time, one particular day, maybe May 16th or something, London had about the same number of daily cases as, as the whole of Taiwan. And London was opening up the pubs again, and Taiwan was shutting down. So I think hopefully the way that and how seriously people are taking it here. The experience of SARS is something that a lot of people in Taiwan remember very vividly. And even the health minister at the time was in charge then as well. They are trying to act quickly, but we don't know, you know, it's the British variant. It seems to be spreading very quickly um, in the older population. And it's, it's really shocking for many people. Mask wearing has been pretty consistent throughout, hasn't it? People did let up, you know, at different times during the year, but just with the the recent uptick in cases, initially they said masks must be worn at all times outside of your home. And if you weren't, maybe you'd get a warning at first and then a fine. And then very quickly, almost two days later, it seemed like they upped that too. There's there's going to be no warning. So you could get fined about $100 or $300 for not wearing the mask outside. I think they made one exception for the the delivery workers who don't have anywhere to go to eat their lunch. So if they're eating lunch outside, they can take their masks off. That makes sense that there would be an allowance for people who are outside, not close to their home and need to have their lunch. But what have the restrictions done to your family's travel plans? So we had booked our tickets uh, to go back to Europe, uh, flying to London first on July 10th. And um, my partner has actually gone back already. He went to see his mom and he had said as soon as the numbers started ticking up, oh, why don't you just come back early? And to be honest, I felt that Taiwan has been so good to us and we have been able to benefit from, you know, how, what an excellent job it had managed through the entire pandemic that we couldn't desert <laughs> uh, and leave early. And especially because I also had one dose of the vaccine already through a special self-paid program that they had when no one was interested in getting the vaccine um, about a month ago. The airline had just told us that the day of our flight, that flight has been canceled, but they suggested the day before. So at the current time, I think I will stick with the plan, leave as, you know, we have movers to think about um, other things that we're supposed to wrap up. So I, I, I don't feel like... It's at the stage where I have to bail. And how have you felt being far away from family and friends while these new restrictions have come into force? I think a little bit in the back of my mind, what if things got really bad? What if they started suspending all the flights and we're stuck here for a little bit longer than we expected? But at the same time, I feel like Taiwan has a very compliant population in terms of, you know, whether it be masks or abiding by the rules not to travel to other places. So I feel like people are really trying to do as much as they can so that it won't spread out of control. But already some of the hospitals have said that they have are hoping that some of the other hospitals can help them out outside of the, the, the big hotspots. So, you know, as you know from, and as Taiwan knows as well from the experience around the world, it can go from a few cases to hundreds and thousands so quickly. So I guess that's my concern, but I'm trying not to think about it too much right now. And how did you react when you heard about the new rules? Well, initially, when Taiwan announced that it was going to this next uh, level of epidemic restrictions, I was actually a little bit relieved because I thought, okay, I can take some time, take things slower, be at home do my practice, which when you're teaching, sometimes that gets put to 
decide because you have classes to go to and then family life. So I looked forward to that. And then I, then we started with the online teaching and that was a new experience as well. So that was interesting and it's been interesting. And I think there's, you know, people think about yoga, they think, oh, it's stretching or it's like a kind of exercise or a workout, but there's another aspect to it, which is called pranayama, which is a breathing um, kind of, we call it control of the breath, but it's probably not the best translation. But that's something that always seems to slip sometimes with me when I'm busy, but I've been able to take some time out to do that. So that's a very calming practice as well. And I guess I'm taking the advice of some of my teachers from last year that said, maybe, maybe this isn't the time to improve your yoga um, when you're in lockdown or when you're stressed. Um, maybe it's just the time to do the yoga that you need to restore your body, to restore your mind, to calm down. <laughs> so I've, I've been using it that way. As lockdown starts to lift in London and the Pilates and yoga classes I had been happily doing online suddenly are going back in person and I'm not so sure I'm ready to go back in person. I've actually liked the convenience of not having to get childcare, not having to race out somewhere and just do the class online. But I can certainly appreciate if you're a teacher that you would want to be able to see your students and being in, in the room with them. How do you feel as an instructor? Do you prefer online or in-person classes? <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting because some of the people who've been joining the classes, which uh, interestingly are at different times than my usual classes, are people I don't know um, I, or I don't recognize them. And for some reason, maybe perhaps because um, Zoom classes are somewhat new in Taiwan, so a lot of people don't even turn on their camera. So I don't recognize the name, and then they don't turn on the camera, so I don't even know if they're just sitting there listening or if they're actually doing yoga. But it's also been, I think it's great, because I always ask my students, who practices at home? Or do you practice headstand at home? Or something like this. And usually very few people do. So I think being in lockdown of sorts, it's letting people say, explore that space for themselves in their homes that, wow, I can do this at home. And yes, someone may be kind of instructing me and guiding me, but here I am taking an hour, an hour and a half of my day um, to do yoga at home. And, oh, I can use the wall or I can use this book, which because I don't have any actual yoga props or, um, so I think that's good. And I hope that people will um, stick with a little bit of what they've learned that they can do at home even when things open up again. I remember you doing yoga way back when we started working together at CNN about 20 years ago. Yes, I think it was something of a lifesaver for me because you know, we were working night shifts, we felt like we were jet lagged or something wasn't quite right for a lot of the time. And it was great because I could go to a yoga class that I wouldn't have been able to go to if I'd been working a normal nine to five job. So I found these little pockets of time where I could go to a class, just relax, enjoy the effects of yoga. I think it just really resonated with me. I felt when I met this teacher that I had um, been going to for a while, I thought, wow, what a great life <laughs> to be teaching yoga to people as, as a job. And of course, that was before I realized that you know financially, it's not exactly a very stable uh, way to make a living, but it 
even since, you know, 20 years ago, it had just been a source of release of stress, um, just feeling good and a, and a whole community wherever I was, whether it was London, Beijing, Hong Kong, the West Coast of Ireland, there was always people that you would meet who became, you know, as, as my partner likes to call them, my yoga buddies. So that's been a, a way to build a community outside of work with common interests that's really helped me in every place that I've lived. So how does the type of yoga you practice or the, the method you practice, how does it differ from place to place or does it? Have, have you found the, the, the same, that the practice is more or less the same wherever you go around the world? Oh, that's an interesting question, Jill. So I started yoga in London and I think it does have, a, this, the style is very similar. The, the teacher's approach is a little bit different everywhere. Um, in London, not to be stereotypical, but they're a bit more reserved. And when I went to a yoga class for the first time in the U.S., I was surprised at how casual and how chatty some of the teachers were, you know, reflection of if there's a national character or not, um, just the differences between British and American styles. In Beijing, when I practiced, the teacher was coming from France. Uh, so... Again, he had a different style. So, but the, the practice itself of yoga, I think the core of it is, is the same. And that's been great because I followed this one method of yoga, Iyengar yoga. So wherever you go, we kind of have associations and they tried to make some, something of a institution around the type of yoga to keep it pure is maybe one way to put it, um, to make sure that the teachers were trained well and there was kind of a natural progression in, in how teachers would become more senior. So it's something that you can kind of rely on <laughs> wherever you go to have those standards. So what was it that first drew you to Iyengar yoga? I was working um, out at a gym that was very close to CNN's old headquarters on Oxford Street. And I think the way I started yoga was... I forgot my my sneakers, my runners, or whatever you call them in in the UK. Um, and I I thought, oh, there's a yoga class, so I guess I could go to that. So I went there, and I thought, oh, this is great because I used to like to do gymnastics when I was younger, and it kind of felt like that, like a good stretch. And then I think I went, so I kept going to this teacher, and then one day she wasn't there, and so I went to another class and I was really a little bit surprised because it was very different and it seemed like all the things that my teacher had been focusing on about alignment and being safe in in certain poses and backbends or inversions that this teacher didn't seem to be aware of and so I that bothered me and I liked the fact that in the Iyengar method that there was this focus on precision and alignment because of the safety effect but also because of the way that it would result in you being able to let your body be in its correct state. So, you know, whether that means the organs in the right place or the, the frame of mind by doing a pose a certain way. And who would you say would benefit from Iyengar yoga versus another method? I think you need to be the type of person who likes to take instruction and follow it. Um, some people like to kind of go to a class and just, oh, you know, do their own thing. And Iyengar Yoga is kind of focused on the reason that we're doing it this way is because we want to have a certain effect. So some people don't like that. Younger people, sometimes they want more 
a more active class. Sometimes a younger yoga might not be as active as, as you hope. People who have injuries often tend to come towards Iyengar yoga because there's a whole therapeutic side to it. I don't know if there's actually one type of person because it, it does tend to attract a wide range of people for different reasons. But um, the people who like precise instruction tend to enjoy it um, more than people who want to just go and do their own thing. And how long did it take you to become an instructor? So Iyengar yoga is very strict on that. They would like people to practice for three years and then do a training, which um, is about three years. So for, in my case, I started my training after, te- after studying for three years, but I wasn't able to finish it for, I think, I can't remember now, I've kind of lost track, maybe 12 years because I'd moved around. So I started in London, I moved to Beijing for work, then I got pregnant, um, so I couldn't keep the training up. So it took many years, but I think that whole experience of, of being pregnant and practicing yoga and having to wait such a long time before I was finally able to get my teaching certificate, it just made me have more experience to be able to start teaching. And what other impact do you think moving around a lot has had on your life? So I've been moving around since I went away for my junior year in college. So that was in 1991. And I think it's never seemed like a big deal to pick up and move uh, for a job or because I got tired of a, a city or a job and wanted something new. It never um, seemed difficult. It seemed like there were so many opportunities and I wanted to you know, use this experience with whether it be my, my Chinese language skills when I moved to Beijing or my journalism skills that I thought I had, you know, honed to a certain point after living in Hong Kong and, and try those out back in, you know, London where a Chinese wasn't a required skill. So all the moves seemed to kind of have a purpose. And then when I had a family, the choices that I started to make were less about, you know, what's my next career move? Whereas what kind of home do I want to have for my daughter? What does, what do we want her to think of as her home? You know, it was funny because in Beijing, she went to an international school, a preschool, and the students there would say, oh, I'm from Canada, or I'm from America, or I'm from Ireland. And many of them had never lived in those countries. And many of them might be, you know, Asian American families or families who had also, like us, moved around many times. So we had this moment where we were a little bit tired of the incredible traffic in Beijing and the related pollution that came with that, you know, her school sometimes wouldn't be able to let the children play outside. They called them red flag days because the pollution was so bad. So we thought about moving back to Ireland for maybe a few months and then think about where we would move to next. But we ended up staying for the whole year. And then we went to Hong Kong and everyone was saying we want to move back to Ireland, which was not what we expected to happen. So we moved back and that's when I really started to realize that the west coast of Ireland, a small village that was where my partner's uh, mother had grown up, it was so important to her sense of her home. And the community there in Ireland is just unlike any place we lived before because it is a community. She has relatives. And even if she didn't have relatives, it's such a small place. There's, I think, 1,100 people living in that village that everyone kind of knows everyone and you feel safe. And as a child, that's just so important. How long would you say it took you to cultivate that sense of community? And did you feel the same way as the rest of your family? 
It took a while for me because at first we thought we were there temporarily. And so while she was enrolled in kindergarten there, which they call junior infants, and she didn't have an idea of how long she'd be there. I kept thinking in the back of my mind, well, we're just here for a few months or maybe a year and then we're going to go and do something else. But because uh, Seamus had some extended family there, there was a link there and she thought, oh, these are my relatives. So for her, it was it was very quick that she felt like this was her home. And um, because she knew the house we were living in had been the summer home of uh, Seamus's parents as well. So she felt like this is where my family comes from. For me, it was such a change of pace from Beijing. You know, Beijing, a city I think then was something like 17 million to a village of 1,100 people was a shock. And we're living on this small, remote, rural road. Uh, you know, the, sometimes the most traffic I would see was, you know, so a farmer moving his cows from one field to another down the road. So it was a big change. But again, it was, you know, partly a yoga friend who helped me feel more at home there. Um, and that was, you know, a surprise to find an, another younger yoga teacher in this small village on the west coast of Ireland. But now I have to say, I've come to really love that pace of life in the west coast. It's something that I wouldn't have thought in my 20s or even early 30s, but it's, it's something that I look forward to moving back to. So how have you found living in Taipei far away from that network that you grew accustomed to? It seems like going kind of in the routine that I, we had before moving uh, that I had before moving around because initially we thought, oh, it's just a year and then we'll go back. And because when we first came, it, there was no pandemic and we always thought, oh, we could go home for Christmas or we could go home for these breaks. And having been here now without traveling for almost 12 months, it's been okay because my immediate family is with me because we have things like Zoom or Skype to stay in touch with family. And I guess because of the unpredictable nature of the pandemic, we keep thinking it's just around the corner, things are going to change, but it hasn't. Um, and now with the introduction of the vaccine, we're again breathing another sigh of relief, hoping that, you know, by this summer, there should be some shift and we'll be able to, to move back to Ireland, which is, which is our plan. How have you dealt with missing Ireland while you've been away? Well, strangely, or perhaps not so strangely, because Taiwan is also an island. Um, some of the scenery on the coasts is actually very similar to the west coast of Ireland. So sometimes just even looking at the sea, the cliffs, we think of home. Um, I think the community in Taiwan, the, the friendliness of the people, even though we don't have any family here, but we feel that people are, are friendly and embracing us. There is a particular small island that's off the west coast of Taiwan, but it's part of the country, that is so similar to Ireland that my partner just loves going back there. Um, again, it's probably a, a population of about a thousand people. And there's old stone houses, actually they're part stone and partly made of coral that the local population built there when they emigrated from the mainland um, part of China maybe 400 years ago. And they built this culture and of building houses from coral there. And the village was largely by many people look, seeking work on the main island of Taiwan. But people have slowly started coming back to it and 
and reclaiming their family homes and trying to, to build up a life there. So sometimes we go to this small island on the holidays and for Seamus, he feels at home because it's so sparsely populated and the people are very friendly there and they do, you know, fishing or small crafts. And we just take a break from the sort of busier life that we still have in Taipei. What a beautiful image. I love thinking of you guys there. Thank you for sharing that. I hope you stay safe and I would love to see you in person again soon. I hope we can see each other very soon, Jill. Thanks for listening to this episode of How to Build a Village. You can find out more on howtobuildavillage.com.